Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's chapter is Hebrews chapter 9, and honestly, if you want to know what the purpose of worship is, there is no better chapter to look at in all of Scripture. Here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section, second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. So if you want to focus on the theology of worship here in chapter 9, zoom in, narrow in on verse 1, verses 6 and 7, verse 9, verse 11, and verses 13 and 14. 1, 6, 7, 9, 11, 13, 14. If you just reread those verses, it gives you a, a succincter look here. But, I mean, the whole chapter does it quite well already. But that's, again, if you want to just zoom in. So let's take a look at this together. Now we start with the first covenant. Yesterday, chapter 8, we talked about the old covenant and how it's vanishing because there's a new covenant that God has promised to us, a new covenant with a better mediator and better promises, all of that pointing us to Jesus, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, his body and blood shed for us, and we're going to talk about that some more today. So the first covenant had regulations for worship. There were priests that were set aside to do the work. There were garments that they were supposed to wear. There were specific sacrifices they were supposed to do. There were certain things they were supposed to do with the meat of the offerings or the grain of the offerings to then have it be provided as food for them. Lots of regulations involved in that. You can read, let's see, Exodus, probably anywhere after chapter 23, through the end of the book, you can see some of that. Uh, Leviticus chapters 1 through, well, at least 6 to get the picture of all the sacrifices that they did. There's a lot to it, right? It's a very holy thing. And in fact, the first high priest, Aaron, his first two sons are killed by the judgment of God because they thought they could just worship however they wanted. Worship is not something that we just do however we please. The Lord is actually quite specific about it, that it is to be holy, that is set apart. In a way, you could even use the word foreign. Our worship ought not look like the world around us. Because the world around us is broken and filled with sin, and yet we are we are coming before the holy God of heaven and earth. So our worship is set apart. It looks different. And that's a great way to have a conversation about worship with your kids. What do you see? What do you hear that you don't elsewhere? And you can do that in different ways. So talk about a holy space. Talk about the church building itself where your family worships. What do you see here that you don't see anywhere else? And there's several things probably, right? Pews, uh, the giant cross on the wall, an altar, maybe crosses in general depending on what you're used to, Bibles, hymnals, 
offering plates, all the candles up front, especially that red one, the eternal candle. What do you see? What do the kids recognize? What do they notice that they're not used to seeing anywhere else? Then there's holy words that we use in church as well. So what do you hear that you don't hear anywhere else? And so you have words that are spoken sometimes that aren't even in English. Kyrie, right? Latin for, for Lord. Kyrie eleison, the Lord have mercy. Unfortunately, you don't even hear that English phrase in, in much of life outside of the church, right? Lord have mercy. Right? Your phrase, oh my God, delete it from your vocabulary. Replace it with Lord have mercy. What a better, better way to respond to grief or shock. There are holy words, and the liturgy itself that is used in most of our Lutheran churches, it's the word of God, right? If you go through the hymnal, you go through the divine service settings that are there, you'll see that next to almost everything that's said, there's a scripture reference, because the words aren't our words. They're holy. They're the words of God himself, and the pastor speaks the word of God to you. You speak the word of God back to him in response. We are encouraging one another with the word of God himself. There's holy music that you often will not hear anywhere else. Um, we have, as a family, tried to separate that. Actually, we, we try to bring that holy music out of the church and into our life, rather than the other way around, bringing the, the music of the world into the church. Um, it's fun, in some ways, to actually have my children in the house making up their own songs using tunes that are hymn tunes and just putting words to it. Still have to work to teach them that holiness, though, so that they don't just end up abusing the holy things and making them meaningless. So that can be a great way to have this conversation around worship as a family. What makes it holy? What do you see in here that you don't see or hear elsewhere? What makes it set apart? All right, so let's look. Let's return to the text here. The tent was prepared, first section, so the tent or tabernacle, eventually the, the physical building of the temple, had two sections. That first section, which was larger, had the golden lampstand. It had the table of the bread of the presence, which interestingly had both bread and wine on it, by the way, foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament description, you see the, the altar of incense there as well. It's interesting here that that has been placed in the most holy place by the preacher. I don't have much to comment on that um, to you other than simply noticing that that is the case here. So you've got the second room, which is the most holy place. In the Old Testament description, all that's in that most holy place would be the throne of God himself. Why do I say it's a throne instead of the ark? Well, it is the ark of the covenant. But when you hear the word of that, when you hear the ark of the covenant, you you probably don't think of it as a throne. You think of it as a box. And yes, it's there. It holds the things he says, right? The jar of manna, the staff of Aaron that budded, the tablets of the covenant, so the Ten Commandments that Moses had to redo because he broke the first set. Arguably, God wrote the second set too for him, but places all those in the ark. But the ark is then covered with a mercy seat, 
the lid of the ark of this box is a seat it is to be sat on but it is holy it's not sat on by anybody it's sat on by god this is his seat his throne in the midst of his people now it's unclear in the old testament how big the cherubim are so the angels that are mentioned there are two of them Uh, are they small in which case they end up being almost like armrests on the sides of these things of this chair this throne or are they large in which case they are providing shade to the one who sits on the throne and there's just no detail given to us in Scripture to indicate anything more than what we just said. I mean, they shadow the mercy seat. They give it shade, which is, I mean, that would be possible either way. But we have to agree with the preacher of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. Why not? Because we don't have them. Even he didn't have them at that time. The Ark of the Covenant's gone by this point. So we just don't know other than the detail that's in Scripture. And for whatever reason, that particular detail was left out. God gave the blueprint. They made it according to the blueprint, and it was how he wanted it to be. So these preparations are made. The priests go in. They do their duty. They take the blood. They make the sacrifices. And the high priest goes into the the most holy place before the ark, the throne, just the one time a year, offering you know, the sacrifice of the blood for himself and for the people. We've talked about that in the last few days a couple of times now. But note here verse 8, by this, so the basically the closed offness of things, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as the holy place is there, the most holy place is shielded from us. Which is symbolic for the present age, so the Old Testament sacrificial system, life in this world. When did it end? Verse 10, the time of Reformation. Verse 11, when Christ appeared. Do you remember the death of Jesus on the cross? What happened? See if your kids do. What happened in the moment that Jesus died on the cross? Like what physical things actually occurred in creation? There was a darkness that cast over the earth for three hours that led up to his death. But at his death, there's an earthquake. Tombs open up and the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27, uh, round verse 50 or so and onward in that chapter. It's a longer chapter. The way is now open through the blood of Christ. In the old covenant, you and I, well, I mean, it's verse 9, right? Gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You and I could not come before God's throne, but now we can because of Christ's blood, which does make the worshiper purified in conscience. That's what the rest of the text is going to be about. So the the time of reformation is the new covenant of Jesus Christ that we talked about in chapter 8 yesterday. So Christ has appeared. He is the better high priest of the things that come. He is the, it's the greater and more perfect tent. Have we added that to the list of betters here in Hebrew? Hebrews here? Uh, He entered once for all. That once phrase, I should have searched that. It shows up several times in this chapter. How important is it that Jesus does this 
once. That contrast with the former priesthood that had to do sacrifices every day, had to enter the holy place, the most holy place every year in order to sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the throne of God. His is an eternal redemption for us. He went in not with animal blood, but with his own blood, unblemished, perfect. That's verse 13. So if the blood of goats sprinkled on a defiled, an unclean, a sinful person had a benefit, right? It could sanctify, it could make holy. How much more will the blood of Christ purify us? Notice that, purify our conscience from dead works. That would include the Old Testament sacrificial system. Those don't save you. Christ does. We serve the living God. You get an interesting glimpse here in the next paragraph of the last will and testament kind of idea. Testament and covenant are words that are used almost interchangeably by a lot of theologians. I don't care for that distinction. I like to go with the word covenant. It's the common word in the New Testament. But there is, and just has such a more powerful, profound meaning when you think of the, the deal being made in blood. Uh, if it's broken, somebody's killed. It just it fits with both the Old and the New Covenant. Christ shedding his blood is the payment for the broken first covenant, and it's also the blood cut and shed in order to start a new covenant with that second, the New Covenant, the Lord's Supper for us. Covenant's the better word. But if you're looking to use that word testament, here is the one time where the Bible actually speaks this way. At least as far as I can tell, this is the only time this example is actually used in Scripture, that this is Jesus' last will and testament. As long as the person is alive, the will doesn't go into effect. But once he's killed, once he dies, his will takes effect. So Christ, uh, his will went into effect. His death redeems us from our sin. That was his will and testament for us. In that sense, it's fitting. And so the image does get used. It's not wrong. Covenant is just better. All right, so here's that picture then coming through again. Uh, not even the first covenants inaugurated without blood. Uh, we learn how that happened there in the next couple of verses as Moses sprinkles blood on all kinds of things. You had to have blood to start a covenant. Sacrifice had to be made to make the arrangement much stronger than a promise or a deal. I mean, this is a binding thing that if it's broken, someone dies. Because it's cut in blood. If it's broken, blood must be shed. Well, that's Jesus' blood that does it. Again, it's the shed blood for the old. It's the shed blood to start the new. But verse 22 is where we want to go here. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is your purpose of worship. All the way through scripture. What is worship for? Your forgiveness. In the Old Testament, that made it something you did because you had to bring your animal to the priest. It had to be slaughtered. The blood had to be offered. Not anymore. In the New Testament, in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, it's no longer something you do, right? Uh, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Worship 
is now God serving you. That's why we call it the divine service. Our German was Gottesdienst. God is serving us, and he does so with his own body and blood, which he shed on the cross, his death, to cleanse us of our sins. So our sins are forgiven. And that's one on verse 22, as you just read it with your kids, you can ask them the easy question. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whose blood was shed to forgive our sins? We get another new better in verse 23. Jesus' sacrifice is the better sacrifice. All the Old Testament things that were used in worship had to be purified by blood. Well, now Jesus' blood purifies us, purifies the heavenly courtroom as well, the heavenly throne room, the the better tent, the more perfect tent. Christ's blood is there. He has entered, not the copy, but the real thing. He is in the very presence of God himself in paradise on our behalf. And he didn't do it repeatedly. We've been talking about this over the last few days. The high priest does it repeatedly every year. But Jesus did it once for all. His death, the perfect death, the death of the one who was truly without blemish, the death of God himself, that can take away all of our sins. Not only can, has. And for that we rejoice. So verse 27 Man dies, and then there's judgment. Christ died, offering himself once. And so now what's his second thing? He comes to save. Christ saves us. He rescues us. And he's coming back to do just that. He's coming back to rescue us from this world of sin and death where the devil still laughs and mocks and tempts. Christ is victorious. He is yours. And you? are his. Wait for him, for he will not be long.